Morning, family. Are you ready to get right to work this morning? All right, let's jump to Ruth chapter 1. And for the first time in our series so far, we will not begin at verse number 1. But not far off. Let's read verses 6 through 22 together this morning. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. And I, I do see that, that the, the spread of those Bibles is wearing uh, a little bit thinner than it used to be, which means some of you have taken us up on that. And so I'm, I'm really glad about that. I'm glad that that is happening. Praise God. We're in Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Let's read these together this morning. And at the end of that reading, I will say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you then to respond by saying thanks be to God. You ready? Let's read. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the Lord, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So here we are 
And it may be strange to think that it's taken us now six weeks to get even to the end of chapter one. But here we are. And we've been dealing with the last couple of weeks this passage, really verses 6 through 22, that give us this picture of this revolving, this turning that's happening in the lives of these three women, Naomi, Orpah, Ruth. And really there's a fourth turning that we saw at the very beginning, which was the turning of Israel, which was implicit in the fact that the Lord had visited His people and brought bread. That meant that the first turning were the people of God actually repenting of their sin and God visiting them again with blessing. And then the rest of this passage deals with this turning, this theme. How many times do you see return, return, return in the passage? And we've talked about how the writer is using that turning as a literary device to bring our attention to this physical turning that really signifies a spiritual turning. Not all of it a spiritual turning for the good. For we see here, as we saw last week most especially, that Orpah turned not to the Lord, but back to her people. And not only that, to the gods of her people. We see that explicitly in what Naomi says to Ruth about her when she she entreats her to go back with her sister-in-law, who she says in verse 15, has gone back to her people and to her gods. You see there it explicitly being stated that what was involved in that turning was not just a choice between what might have been comfortable or pleasing to her, but rather it was a spiritual choice to return away from the God of Israel and back toward the gods of Moab. Last week as we were in the park, we looked at the crossroads that we see there and the contrast between the two different responses from Naomi's daughters-in-law as they counted the cost of what it meant to turn from their homeland, their families, their gods, what they knew and were comfortable with and to follow Naomi to the land as it says, of Judah, of Israel. Last week we also looked at Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, and we saw how that the reason that we can give, the the reason that we can give for that difference, that contrast between Orpah and Ruth, was really based upon the preparation of the heart. And we saw that in the parable of the sower and the seed. That we need a sower who will plow the fields of our hearts and break up the fallow ground, remove the rocks and the stones and pull up the weeds and the roots of the cares of this world which are tangled up in our bitterness and our pride. Orpah, you see, had that rocky, weed-filled soil in her heart. And when the cost was counted... She was out. Though she left weeping, weeping yet she went. For tears are not enough to bring us to God. Many 
leave weeping. But it is only those who repent and come to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that never shall return in that way. Amen? You see, it's not easy to follow Jesus. In case you didn't hear me, let me say that again. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And every one of us must count the cost. Jesus himself said this, that we must count the cost. And in counting the cost, we must deny ourselves, pick up our cross, this suffering, and follow him. And so we saw that contrast in Ruth. That though Naomi, as we read here this morning, tried to persuade her, to dissuade her in some way as Orpah, Orpah and Ruth heard the same message. They both heard the same message of the good news that God had visited His people and brought bread. They also heard the same arts of persuasion that Naomi was trying to use to dissuade them from going with her. But what was the difference? The same messenger, the same message. What was the difference? The soil of Ruth's heart had been prepared. The seed of the good news had been planted and grew strong and resolute. And I'll remind you, as I reminded you last week, in the parable of the the sower and the seed, what are we? Not the sower... We're not the seed, we're the soil. And what can soil do to prepare itself for the seed? Nothing. That is why we need a sower who will come and prepare the soil of our hearts, breaking up the fallow ground, removing the rocks and the stones and the weeds so that the seed can be planted. We can't do that for ourselves. But what can we do? We can cry out, to the one who is able, the one who said, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Praise God for Jesus who through the Holy Spirit prepares the soil of the heart of those whom he has chosen to receive the good news. The seed is spread indiscriminately. But God is the one who prepares the soil and causes both the seed to be planted and watered until it grows. And is He is Himself the one who gives the increase. Amen? And so again, another theme that we will see continually in this story is the theme of God's faithful and sovereign providence. Not only the big, the macro, nations, kings, and cosmos, but also over the small, the micro, families widows, and barley fields. And this should give us confidence to hope that God is not merely concerned with the affairs of state, but that our own individual families and even ourselves are within the sight of His care and the care of His hand. Amen? 
So we've seen this contrast, the rejection on one hand by Orpah, the resolution on the other by Ruth, and we've seen the application that each of us likewise must make up our own minds to count the cost and decide, will we forsake the world to follow Jesus as Ruth followed Naomi? Or will we in the face of adversity and suffering, for make no mistake, that is the road of the Christian life, Yes, hope. Yes, joy. But following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. We are those who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's why we have to sing songs like, Though you slay me, yet I will trust you. That's why we have to sing songs like, By faith we see the hand of God. For we have to look with the eyes of faith sometimes and not our natural eyes to see that God is still at work when what we see around us is famine and barrenness and widowhood. And we could have moved on from there. But I want us to look again at these beautiful words by Ruth in verses 16 and 17. And I want to take some more time there to make some observations about her resolution and see what we might learn there today about Jesus, his pursuit of us, and what it means to resolutely follow him. So let's look again at that whole piece in verses 15 through 18. And she, she being Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law, Orpah, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, immediately in verse 15, what do we see? We see Naomi going hard. Right? She's not, she's not satisfied. She, she presses and the girls both say no. She presses again and Orpah goes, but Ruth still says no and she presses again. I mean, some people might finally take the hint. I don't want you here. Get lost, is what it seems like Naomi is saying. But Ruth is just not following. She's not taking the hint. We see Naomi going hard here. Why? Why? I really believe that it's because she will not allow the girls, again, Moabite girls, pagan girls, to follow her back to the land of Israel out of mere obligation. There are many in the church today, perhaps even here this morning, who are walking through the paces out of mere obligation. 
Now, if you're a child and you're here today out of mere obligation, let me tell you something. The fact that your parents have obligated you to be here is the most loving thing that they could possibly do for you. But let me tell you what the prayer and the cry of their heart will be. Is that on the day when that obligation is lifted and you are given the freedom to make your own choice about who you will follow and who you will serve. The fact that you're even here this morning says that your parents cry to God is that you would follow hard after Him. Not out of obligation, but out of repentant hearts full of true worship for God. And there are many in the church today because of obligation, because of cultural tendencies and things that make them feel like this is the right thing to do and so this is what I will do. Naomi understood something that the rest of us need to understand that following God out of mere obligation never actually turns out. Because when the cost is finally called for, you won't be willing to pay. You won't be willing to pay. And the cost is high. But can I tell you something? The reward is greater. The reward is greater because the reward is possession of Jesus himself. And there is no greater reward than Christ. So Naomi's not willing that the girls will follow her out of mere obligation and do not confuse Ruth's resolution here as obligation. Yes, there was a cultural obligation for these girls to go with their mother-in-law, but at this entreaty, at this crossroads where she's removed them out and there's nobody there to look around, there's nobody there to say what they've done or what they haven't done, if they've kept their obligation or they haven't, she gives them this opportunity to say, now's your chance, turn back, go back. No one will ever know the wiser but may we see this for what it truly is, at least the verbal confession and profession of a heart that has truly been converted as Ruth gives this confession. Whether in that moment or years before, we do not know, but this profession of faith is truly that of a converted heart and not one of mere obligation. We'll see that unfold later as we go through the rest of the story where that conversion will be made more explicit. But we saw that obligation was enough to bring one to the crossroads of counting the cost, but it was not enough to bring one over the threshold to the place of faith. So Naomi entreats her to follow after her sister-in-law, likely 
because of her place in the text, her elder sister-in-law, using peer pressure now to try to dissuade her from following. And yet, Ruth remains resolute. Why? Because the seed of true faith had been planted in her heart. Else she could not have stayed the flood of Naomi's objections. The relation of this portion of Scripture and what are called the Targums or the Chaldee paraphrases, which are like ancient Aramaic commentaries, is as follows. This is how it relates to the debate between Naomi and Ruth. It's how young Jewish Hebrew children were taught this story. It says, Ruth uh, said, Entreat me not to leave thee, for I will be a proselyte. Now, a proselyte is a, a convert. But in the Old Testament, the term is used to denote a newcomer to Israel or a sojourner. Remember that Naomi came as a sojourner to Moab. Now Ruth is saying, I will go and I will be a foreign convert, a sojourner in Israel. Listen now to this exchange and the way it was related. How Naomi's trying to dissuade Ruth. Naomi said, we are commanded to keep Sabbaths and good days on which we may not travel above 2,000 cubits, a Sabbath's day journey. Well, said Ruth, whither thou goest, I will go. Naomi said, we are commanded not to tarry all night with Gentiles. Well, said Ruth, where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Naomi said, we are commanded to keep 613 precepts. Well, said Ruth, whatever thy people keep, I will keep, for they shall be my people. Naomi said, we are forbidden to worship any strange God. Well, said Ruth, thy God shall be my God. Naomi said, we have four sorts of deaths. For malefactors, stoning, burning, strangling, and slaying with the sword. Well, said Ruth, where thou diest, I will die. We have, said Naomi, houses of sepulchre. And there, said Ruth, will I be buried. You see, she had to have an understanding of what she was walking into. It wasn't simply an immigration from one country to another, but rather it must be, it must needs be a turning away from everything that she knew and walking into something that was completely new in Israel in this worship of God. And church, it is no different for us coming to faith. For what had to happen for Ruth, must happen for us. And what is that? That everything she held in her hands, the comforts and the joys and, and the, the, the knowledge that she had of her home life and the life that she led before, she had to completely let go of so that she could take hold of what was to be hers in the promised land. Church, we have to do the same. 
for we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve the world and Christ. We cannot serve our own sinful, lustful desires and Christ. We must forsake our sin and turn to Christ. We have to let go. These are faithful understandings to what Ruth is setting up in her speech to Naomi. And she says, entreat me not any longer. I don't care what you may say. I don't care what I'll have to give up. The reward is worth the cost. Do you see that that's what she's saying? The reward is worth the cost. My mind is made up. I'm going with you. I will go with you. I will stay with you. You will be my mother. Remember in Naomi's uh, objection, what did she say? Return to your mother's house. Return to your mother's house. And what is Ruth saying here? She's saying, no, 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 no. You, you are my mother. You will be my mother. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. I will worship when and where and how and who you do. And where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. Ruth is forsaking all so that she might take possession of God. Her course of direction, her length of stay, her allegiances to family, kin, and nation, to gods. And how far will she take it? What does she say? And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. What is she saying? She's taking this to the death. Ruth is assuming that Naomi, being the elder, will die first. And she is not willing that even at that point, even at the point of entering her into the ground, that she would not even then return to Moab. Even then she would not return to her mother's house. Even then she would not return to her people. Even then she would not return to the gods of her childhood. But will carry out her loyalty until she herself dies. And then even in death, do you follow this? Even in death, she is not willing to be separated from Naomi, but will rather be buried next to her bones. And as Matthew Henry puts it in his commentary, not desiring to have so much as her dead body carried back to the country of Moab in token of any remaining kindness for it, but Naomi and she having joined souls, she desires they may mingle dust. What a phrase. That they may mingle dust in hopes of rising together and being together forever in another world. What does this show? It shows a complete forsaking of all other gods so that she might have the true God, the God of Israel. What devotion. It's no wonder that these words are so often used in marriage ceremonies. Because in human cases, this bond expressed here through these words transcends what is almost even conceivable between two people. This is more than words to assuage Naomi's hesitation to allow the girl to come. They are a solemn oath, a vow, and a covenant. Evident as she utters the word. What does it say there at the end? May the Lord 
Do so to me and more also, if anything but death separates or parts me from you. The resolve here is incredible. Oh, that we would have that kind of resolve against sin. That we would have that kind of resolve and commitment to the body of Christ as the people of God. Oh, that we would have that kind of resolve to the local church, to our marriages, with our spouses and with our children. That kind of resolve to walk together regardless of what may come. Remember, we're still only in chapter 1. Yes, I know that most of us know the end of the story. But at this point of the story, Ruth is guaranteed nothing. The only thing that she is guaranteed right now is what she has, which is what? Only Naomi and the Lord. And what is she saying? It's enough. She's saying it's enough. She's not guaranteed anything moving forward except to continue on with Naomi in widowhood and barrenness. They are hopeful for food. They're going to Bethlehem, the house of bread, where they've heard the Lord has visited and given them food. They're hopeful that they may be able to get at least some food. But other than that, they, they have no guarantee of anything. They simply heard the good news that there is bread in Bethlehem. Church, I ask you this morning, what, what would happen? What would happen in your life, in your family, with your children? What would happen in this local expression of the body of Christ called Redemption Hill if we had that kind of resolve in our lives? What would happen if we didn't live our lives, so to speak, with anchors dragging behind. Do you understand what I'm saying? No one sets sail out of harbor and tosses their anchor out of the boat, but how often do we try to press forward while clinging to what is behind? What would happen if we didn't live our lives with anchors dragging behind? You see, a full, a full sail is of no use if the anchor drags behind. But we live this way so often, hedging our bets and leaving the door half open or half closed, depending on your perspective. Again, Matthew Henry commentates and he says, See the power of resolution. How it puts temptation... To silence. For truly, that's what Naomi is doing. She's trying to tempt Ruth away from this resolve to return home. He says, Those that are unresolved and go in religious ways without a steadfast mind tempt the tempter. Tempt the tempter. And stand like a door half open, which invites a thief. He says, But resolution shuts and bolts the door, resists the devil, and forces him 
to flee. Of course, what is Matthew Henry referring to as he commentates on Ruth 1, 16-17? He's referring to what James the Apostle writes in his letter to the church, rebuking them for their double-minded, disobedient, and quarreling ways. Look at James chapter 4, verses 1-10. through 10. James writes and he says, what, quarrels, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. You want what you want and can't get what you want, so you abandon your faith. And throw it away like so much rubbish. And yet in the midst of those desires that have gone unanswered, there's a way of escape. What does James say? He says, submit and resist. Submit. And resist, submit yourselves to God, he says. That anchor that is hanging out the back of the boat, dragging along the things that you are clinging to, is not submission to God. Why are we talking about a full sail? We, we are reminded from Ephesians that as we are in submission to the Holy Spirit, that that sail is filled so that we might be directed by His Spirit. How can we then toss the anchor and drag it along behind us? We must submit to God. And then it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What, what does this mean? It means that we don't leave that door half open. We don't, we don't put ourselves in the position of, of hanging around our sin and then wondering why we succumb to it. No, the faith that is resolute shuts and bolts the door so that Sin and temptation may be resisted. This is what resolution in the life of the believer does. 
It's not this double-minded man that James talks about. Well, I want the things of the Lord, but I want this too. Well, you can't have both. You must submit to God and resist the devil. But when we do, when we resolutely submit to God and resist the devil, let go of those things so that we can take possession of Christ and know that He is enough. Yes, I, my, I may want these things, but that's not in God's plan for me right now, so let me take hold of Christ, for I know that He is enough, even though I think I want these things. What does that do in the life of the believer? It shuts down the temptation. It locks it up here. We see this resolution and Ruth shuts down Naomi's objections. She sees that she's resolute. And so church, I must say to you, do not leave the door half open to temptation. Do not allow things that belong to the world to clutter your life. Listen to the words of James. Hear and be inspired by the resolution of Ruth. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Mourn and weep for your sin. Humble yourself before the Lord and know that He will exalt you. That if you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. Remember what Jesus promised in John chapter 6. That anyone who comes to Him, He will in no wise cast out. You see, you may think that your past sin has to define you in the future. And that's just not true. Starting today you can be defined by what Christ has done for you rather than what you have done in enmity against Him. And is that not exactly what we see happening in the last part of chapter 1 with Naomi? Look, look at the end of chapter 1. We see Naomi humbling herself, whether out of pure repentance or simply sorrow and rejection. We're, we're not entirely clear from the text, but I want to show you a couple of things. That though, like in the case of Ruth, we can remember that even the desire to want to repent is the spark given by God that the Spirit is faithful to, flan, to fan into flame. You follow me there? Even the, even the desire to want to repent is the spark given by God that the Spirit is faithful to fan into flame. And so I want us to see this before we turn a corner here. Look at verses 19 through 21. So the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Look at verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now there's many things I want us to see here very quickly. Number one, I want you to see that Naomi says she went away full. And we have to understand, and even from the rest of the story, we're going to see that when Elimelech and Naomi left, they were landowners. 
They, not everyone had the means to immigrate to a new nation, but they did. And they took that means and they did it. And we've already seen that this was actually a sinful act as they fled the discipline and the hand of the Lord. And what do we see? We see we left full. We're coming back empty. It didn't work out the way that we thought or we planned, did it? But what else do we see? We see that Ruth and Naomi come to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And what's the first thing that we see that is there when they arrive? People. There's people in Bethlehem. Women in Bethlehem. Enough to get together and have a gossip session in Bethlehem. Why? Why? Because even in the midst of the discipline of the Lord that was experienced through famine, the hand of God preserved His people. The Lord preserved His people through the discipline. We would think from the famine that was in the land and the way that Elimelech and Naomi fled that they'd come back to ghost town. But that's not what they come back to. There are people in the land. Why? Because God preserved his people through the discipline of the Lord. Why? Because the discipline of the Lord was not merely to punish, to inflict pain for the sake of pain, but rather to bring his people to a place of sanctification and holiness before him. There's people there. God was faithful. He did not allow all to die. Somehow he preserved them through the famine. Now let me tell you something. You may be experiencing some kind of famine in your life. It may not be the famine of bare cupboards. It could be. But more often than not today, we are in the place of experiencing a famine that is likely more relational than it is Dictated by food. The breaking of relationship in marriages or with children or with brothers and sisters in Christ. Those times can feel like a famine. Where when we have sinned against one another, the discipline of the Lord is upon us. And we look up and sometimes we think God's not there anymore. Because this or that thing is happening and we are experiencing it in what seems to be a famine. And what is the Lord calling us to? He's calling us to repent. It's interesting. We don't know who was driving, who was the impetus for moving Elimelech and Naomi out of the land of Judah. All we do know is that Elimelech and the sons died and Naomi was left behind. It could have gone the other way. But what was God doing with Naomi? He wasn't content to leave her in the land of her sin and rebellion, but to bring her back to himself through repentance. 
You may be experiencing some kind of famine, not enjoying the fruit of your labor in the time or way that you believe that you should, whether in life, family, church life, and church family. Church, do not abandon where God has called you. He will be faithful to preserve you and to bring you all together into His presence with rejoicing when He brings the increase again. But imagine then, walking into Bethlehem, finding people there, being the one who absconded. (laughs) You're the one that packed your bags and your donkeys and your carts and left. You abandoned us. You absconded. You broke communion with your people, with your family, with your kin. Was there no mother or relative or friend that pleaded with Naomi Not to leave and go where she could not follow. Not to lodge in the land of foreigners. Not to leave her people and her God and die and be buried in a foreign land. And here it is where we are reminded of another. Do you not hear it in the story? We're reminded of another who left his father's house and went full into a far-off country, and there lived the spendthrift life until he had lost everything and was in the depths of despair in the muck of a pig slop, not only dirty on the outside, but unclean before God. And what does he say? There is food in my father's house. There is food enough to spare In my father's house, let me return and be like one of his servants. Do you remember the speech that the prodigal son rehearses on his way back to his father's house? And here, what do we see? What do we see here? We see here in Ruth chapter 1, the story of the prodigal daughter returning. And what does she do? She humbles herself before God. What does she say? Do not call me Naomi. Why? Because Naomi meant sweet or pleasant. What does she say? Call me Mara. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly, very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Call me Mara. Why? Because Mara means bitter. But did you know it can also mean disobedient? Mara means bitter, but it can also mean disobedient. Hear the words of her great-great-great-grandson, the words of repentance. I have been disobedient. I have sinned against God and God alone. And church, what does the Lord require? Not the sacrifice of bulls and goats. What does the Lord require? A broken and contrite spirit. Naomi testifies 
that all that has befallen her is not the mere consequence of cause and effect in the natural or mere fatalistic sense of happenstance. But she testifies that she has received all that has happened as the discipline of a sovereign God who governs not only the nations, but individual families. And then we have verse 22. Okay, what does she say? Don't don't call me Naomi. I'm not sweet and pleasant. I'm disobedient and bitter because of my disobedience. But what does verse 22 say? have to turn there. I'm still in James. I know what it says. But do you hear it? You see what it says, but do you hear it? Who returned? Not Mara. So Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi returned. And again, this verb is used to tell us more than just a geographical fact, but a spiritual one. Naomi repented before God. And though she is calling herself bitter, and she's calling herself disobedient, the Spirit of God by divine text in verse 22 calls her sweet and pleasant again. Do you follow that? Okay. So I told you we we're coming here to learn something about Jesus and his pursuit of us. Maybe you could fill in the gaps on your own, but let's do this together. What does this have to do with Jesus? It may seem like a strange answer to the question, but to get to the answer, I want us to actually turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 15. Because we've heard the name Mara before, haven't we? In Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 through 27, this story of the people of Israel is related to us. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. In other words, it was, it was poisoned. Therefore, it was named Mara, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet 
There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commands, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Ilium, where there were twelve springs of water for twelve tribes. Amazing that provision, isn't it? And seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Again, you may say, what does this have to do with Jesus? He who see, we've heard the name Mara before. The Lord brought the people of Israel through the Red Sea to this place where He tested them. They've come to this water and it's bitter, it's poisonous. They can't drink it. And what does God do? He shows Moses a log and He threw it in the water and the water became sweet. And why would the New Testament say this obscure story was written for us? That we might have hope. And where is the hope here in the log, in the waters, the bitter waters of Mara? Can we put the pieces together? I wish that I had the resolution to say what Ruth has said and keep it to perfection, don't you? May the Spirit of God help us in that endeavor, but church, 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 church. You have one who came from a far off place and has said to you, one who is able to keep his word has said to you, I will come to where you are. And I will live as one of you and stay where you are. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And not even death will be able to separate me from you or you from me. And Jesus came. And the cross of Christ is the log that makes the bitter waters of our disobedience sweet. And though we ought to be called children of wrath, He has made us co-heirs with Him and transferred us from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And if that is not your story, it can be. It can be. For he has said, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent of your sin. Forsake the life that is behind, so that you might take possession of Christ, who died for your sin, that you might be forgiven and was raised, so that you might be justified and brought back into communion with God. He sent Jesus. 
because Jesus made a covenant with the Father to redeem his people. And he has promised to never leave them or forsake them. And even death could not keep him from us. Amen? Humble yourself before the Lord that he might exalt you and lift you up. You want one more, one more little thing? One more tiny, tiny little thing? When, when did Naomi and Ruth come to Bethlehem? Do you know when that is? It's at the time of Passover. It's at the time of Passover. And we see in this text a signifying that God had passed over former sin and had welcomed his daughter, Naomi, And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, was grafted in. She was grafted in. Not to remain separated from the vine, but to be grafted in so that the seed of the woman would pass through Mary. from Ruth, who was brought from Mara, which, hello, is the Hebrew form of the Greek name Mary. And Jesus was brought through barren, bitter waters out of Mary. Because God had passed over former sins so that he might redeem his people and bring them to himself. So that he could say, as is said, all through the Old Testament, do you hear in Ruth's words what is all through the Old Testament, through the prophets, I will be your God and you will be my people. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. God, may it bring great healing to our souls this morning. God, I will pray again what was prayed earlier, that, Lord, you will use your word to bring faith to those who are already believing. Increase our faith, God, by your word. But, God, I pray as well that to those who are yet faithless, that, God, through your word, you would bring faith. May they see and apprehend and take hold of Christ, not merely as this figure from history, but as their very own Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.